been working. Know them working. Hello and welcome to the Community Broadband Bits podcast. This is Lisa Gonzalez from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance and MuniNetworks.org. In our 21st episode, Christopher Mitchell and his guest take us to Stockholm, Sweden. Chris interviews Benoit Felton, co-founder of Diffraction Analysis. The two discuss STOCAP, the municipal fiber network created over 16 years ago by the city of Stockholm. Benoit has authored a detailed case study of the network, and he shares a story with us. Benoit and Chris discuss the ripple effect of the network and lessons learned from this world-class municipal infrastructure. Now to Chris and Benoit. I'm here talking with uh, Benoit Felton with uh, Diffraction Analysis, uh, co-founder of Diffraction Analysis, who has written a number of uh, important research papers, some of which uh, we've discussed before on other shows. Uh, Benoit, it's good to see you again. Hello. It's good to see you, too. I think the last time we were on a show together, we were talking about bandwidth caps, and uh, that was the paper that put you on the map for a number of people, um, the uh, the lunacy of them, I guess. I think the... The issue is still around, but yeah. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, we don't change things just by making a strong factual case against them. Um, but I wanted to talk today about uh, a network in Sweden that has uh, had a lot of attention over the years, and you've published an excellent case study of it that uh, is available to everyone. Um, and so we'll talk about that in a minute. But first, can you tell us a little bit about uh, what diffraction analysis does? Diffraction Analysis is a research and consultancy company that focuses uh, not exclusively, but let's say strongly on issues around the renewal of broadband infrastructure. Uh, It's our belief that the infrastructure that's powered our broadband needs for the last uh, decade, because that's really how old broadband is when you think about it, um, that infrastructure is, is no longer um, suited to the needs of most users in most places. Renewing it or changing it raises a lot of, uh, of issues about uh, who should do that with what, what, with what money and with what, uh, in what time frame, I guess. Um, and so our, our job is to try and uh, understand what works, what doesn't work, who's doing what, one of the really important things that, that I probably don't stress enough and I should stress more is that a lot of these issues are not about the technology. The technology is well understood. There are a number of arbitrations that or choices that, that can be made about the technology, but very few of these, uh, of these uh, successful projects are successful because they picked the right technology. They're successful because they had the right strategic outlook and because they implemented properly. So uh, increasingly, a lot of our work is about not not just um, how do you build uh, a next generation infrastructure, but how do you market it? What are the um, optimal models to sell it? And, and that's the key to the success. So we advise customers in many different countries. If I go east to west, I would start with New Zealand and uh, India, then many European countries, Eastern Europe, Western Europe, um, UK, and then the US, basically. So w- we have a fair number of customers across all of these countries. And interestingly enough, even when you look at emerging markets, the issues are kind of the same everywhere. So it's an interesting market, interesting times. And of course, uh, the US is a particular focus because... Uh, 
politics have kind of um, have a grasp on what's happening in the U.S. much more than in many other countries, or at least um, in other countries, you have the feeling that that policymaking can be a counterforce to corporate. Well, I'm not going to call it corporate greed. That would be maybe slightly excessive, but at least corporate takeover of the market. Right. I think I think you have a sense that um, regulations aren't the root of all evil in other countries, whereas that seems to be a, a dominant sense uh, in American politics. Yeah, I would even go one step further and say that looking at, at the U.S. market from the outside, you get the feeling that that policy is actually actively helping uh, capture of, of, you know, customers uh, for a few established corporate players. You said it's uh, it's not about the technology, and uh, I think that really bears um, emphasizing. And uh, I'm remembering Lance Armstrong uh, wrote a book, um, and his slogan was "It's not about the bike." And of course, now we found out that that's very much true. <laughs> right. Um, right. I'm not sure where you're going with the parallel here, but <laughs> well, it's just that I think that you know a lot of communities get hung up on technology, and um, and the reality is is that there's so many other things that are important. Um, mostly, I'd say probably relationships and business models and things like that. Um, but you you've become an expert on uh, what's happening internationally. It'll be very valuable for our listeners to get a sense of uh, what is happening outside the U.S. and what's possible. Um, and so I don't think um, for the purposes of this conversation, we have to necessarily bring it back to something that lessons that are practical for the U.S. But um, if we drill into, uh, is it Stokab? How do you say that? Uh, the Stokab, city yeah. Stokab. Well, I'm not sure my pronunciation is is very Swedish anyway. But you know, they understand me when I say it like that. So that's enough for me <laughs> at this stage. Excellent. So you're you're out of Paris, France, right? Yes. And uh, you traveled to Stokab to uh, to meet a lot of these people and to do an in-depth case study, which we'll link to on the website. Uh, so I'm curious if you can give us a little bit of background on on what they did. Right. So first of all, let me start by uh, by explaining the genesis of that. Um, I was having a discussion with uh, some of the policy people um, at Google, and and they um, they have been aware of Stokab as an interesting model. As far as they were aware, and as far as I was aware, no one has really ever done an in-depth case study into how it came to be and how it performed over the 15 years it's been around. Um, and so basically, uh, Google said to me, "Look, you know, we'll pay for you to do it. We don't want to interfere. We don't want to. We don't want any involvement in in your conclusions or anything." We're just aware that you know it, it takes time and money to do that kind of analysis, and so we want it to be out there. So just to be completely transparent, there was a form of sponsorship uh, of that paper by Google, which is completely overt. There's no, there's nothing, um, there's nothing uh, fishy about it. Uh, but but I think it, it it it's important to to stress that upfront. What's interesting with Stokab is, first of all, that it is probably the largest and most successful uh, municipal broadband project in Europe. Uh, and maybe the second thing that's really interesting is it's it started, it was the vote to start Stokab occurred in early 1994. So we effectively have 16 years of history 
of that project, which is more than we have on any other municipal broadband initiative around the world, as far as I'm aware. And so that alone makes it an interesting case study or, or topic for study because we have that history. How we analyze that history and the lessons that, that might be uh, relevant for other projects is, is a different matter. But at the very least, um, understanding how it came to be and how it was successful is, is, is a really interesting topic. The important aspect here is that the city of Stockholm owns a number of businesses in various areas, some in, in energy or utilities, uh, some in public housing and things like that. And mm -hmm. uh, so Stokap didn't come out of nothing. It came as one additional business uh, that the city felt was required to effectively serve its citizens. One of the things that struck me, one of the first interviews I made was with one of the uh, uh, the leader of the opposition party when Stokab was voted in as a project. Um, and uh, as we stress in the paper, one of the reasons why why this happened was that there was political consensus about the necessity to make it happen. Mm -hmm. And and what he said to me was, uh, no city would imagine having its roads run by private entities. And for us, this broadband infrastructure is just roads. It's mm -hmm. nothing more and it's nothing less. And as such, it's necessary and we had to make it happen. Um, and, and I like that analogy because it, it shows that they have a way of looking at infrastructure uh, that even by European standards isn't as widespread as you'd think. Um, I know by U.S. standards it certainly isn't, but, but um, even by European standards, that's fairly forward thinking, to say the least. Right. And so they actually they run this network exactly like the roads. Right. I mean, this is a, a network that Stockholm, um, you know, has built and uh, but offers no services on. Absolutely. And, and one of the so it's interesting to understand how the political consensus occurred. Obviously, you would expect using traditional terminology is complicated because what's liberal in Europe is what's conservative in the US. But anyway, so I'm going to try and avoid that terminology. But but basically, pro-market, let's say, pro-free market parties, you would assume would not be in favor of that kind of venture. And what they said was, well, we understand it as a necessary infrastructure. We don't want it to disrupt the market. And in order for that to happen, that infrastructure has to be sold as infrastructure. So the only thing Stokab sells is dark fiber point-to-point -point connections. And that has effectively allowed for a thriving um, competitive service market to be built on top of that infrastructure. Now, I'm always weary of analogy and the road comparison didn't come from me, it came from them. Um, so I don't really know how you would compare it to roads in that sense. But the important thing is they are not competing with uh, the private market, serving everyone on an absolutely equal basis. And in fact, transparency in their offerings and business dealings was also a prerequisite from, uh, you know, that original political decision. So uh, that's really the, the worldview that they had when they launched it.
And so when they uh, they launched this, they didn't just put dark fiber in major corridors, right? They they ended up taking it very deep, and and so uh, in the U.S. and in many places, we typically think of dark fiber as um, going from point A to point B, but point A and point B are not houses. They're typically, you know, uh, maybe a school or a large institution. Uh, but Stokab, they actually run the fiber much deeper into neighborhoods. Is that right? Yeah, although it, absolutely. But but you have to remember that there's 16 years of history here. So right. it's, it, started, it started by connecting, um, you know, hospitals, universities, uh, public institutions, large businesses, as the contracts were signed. Mm-hmm. Um, and gradually, until about 2003, 2004, um, that, that kind of mesh densified, but they were still not actively addressing uh, houses. In fact, there's a, there's a bit of a specific to the, the Swedish market, which, which has an impact on exactly how their strategy unfolded here. And that is that um, inside a building, no one can own any infrastructure apart from the building owner or owners. So the model that uh, is prevalent in, in my country, France, or, or in most of the US, where a telecom operator would deploy its copper network all the way into your home, but still own that copper wire, that's legally not possible in Sweden. So what happened in Sweden was that the real estate owners, when they started realizing the potential of fiber services, turned to Stokab and said, where do we have to pull fiber to connect to your network? So it happened from the other side. It, it, mm-hmm. it came from the homes. Um, and typically, a real estate provider will either himself uh, build the in-building fiber and pull it back to the nearest node, which is usually a few hundred meters away from, from the building. Or they will contract out to an intermediary who will manage that network but not own it. And that intermediary having a long-term contract can actually afford to roll out the network for that limited uh, distance and complete the loop effectively. But it's important to understand that Stokab doesn't get into the buildings. Right. I, f- I think it's it's such a key point there, that, that regulation that stops uh, the existing telco from being able to monopolize a multiple dwelling unit simply because they were the first one there uh, seems to have been a major deciding factor, as I recall your paper, because these real estate companies were such an essential part of making sure much of Stockholm had access to this network. So my answer to that would be yes and no. Okay. Real, real estate players clearly had a, a very important role, um, and I'm going to come back on that for a minute. But the fact that the incumbent operator didn't own the copper that went into the building didn't stop them from being a monopoly provider for most of their history. Mm-hmm. Um, because you still have the cost of deploying that network, even if it has to be borne by the real estate provider one way or another, is still a very important cost. The deciding factor was that the public housing companies and some of the private social housing companies uh, realized that this was a way 
to not only enhance the services that their tenants would get, but also uh, dramatically improve the way they would manage their buildings. Um, I, I recently had a discussion with one of these uh, Swedish public housing companies, and and they were telling me that their response time when their uh, heating issues and typically Stockholm in winter, you know, heating is not a trivial matter uh, by any stretch of the imagination. <laughs> um, and, and they were telling me the difference between being able to stop a heating leak within an hour versus have that go on for 24 hours. That difference financially is huge. It, it's, you know, it's, it, it's immediately thousands of Euro equivalents. So they built smart buildings essentially with this broadband infrastructure that they were um, building to, uh, they, they used it not only to benefit their tenants, but also their operations. Absolutely. And then there was a kind of a, kind of a, a viral effect because real estate providers that were not serving their buildings with fiber or had not done that um, started to realize that they weren't filling their buildings as easily as they used to, whereas the other guys were. Uh, and some of these largest real estate providers actually had buildings with fiber and buildings without fiber. And, and they were, you know, looked at them comparatively and said, oh my God, that's, that's the difference. That's why, you know, we have a 20% uh, non-occupancy rate on these buildings and a 1% non-occupancy rates on those buildings. And again, if you translate that in revenue, the difference is so huge that, you know, connecting those homes with fiber becomes a trivial decision financially. Mm -hmm. I think part of the issue that we see in many other countries, and that's not just the U.S., part of the issue is, and this is where you're right in terms of the, the role of the real estate players, uh, part of the issue is until now, um, most building owners in most countries, at least in the developed world, they have never had to spend a dime on getting communication services inside the building because the price of that monopoly provision from the incumbents or the cable operators was, well, I'll pay for it, but I'm the only one there. I think the, the Swedish real estate companies, the companies in Stockholm, but this also happened outside of Stockholm, they were much more aligned with thinking that, you know, are we willing to look at a business case for this where we spend the money? I'm pretty certain that any building owner in New York City today who made that calculation would realize very quickly that if they paid for fiber access to their building, the, the, the positive outcome of that would be huge. Mm -hmm. It's just that their mind frame is, no, no, these guys have got to pay for it, not me. Right. You see what I mean? So I think it's more a matter of how they view the world than, than the actual economic analysis behind it. What are the key takeaways? Um, I'm, I'm curious, uh, as you dug into this, um, obviously um, communities can't just go back 20 years to duplicate, um, but they have to move forward. And so what are the lessons that, that you think are most valuable for any community around the world? So there's two aspects of that. One of them is, you know, w what can we learn in, in absolute terms from what Stokab did? And the second one is, how do you replicate that? Mm -hmm. uh, the, 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 there are two important aspects in the first point. The first important aspect is it worked. 
right? It's been very successful. Um, we keep hearing over and over again that, you know, uh, it's a waste of taxpayers' money. It can't work. Um, well, it does. Okay. So next time someone says to you, it can't work, you can say, well, why did it work there if it can't work? And to be clear, you've, in your paper, explains this is a network that did not cost the taxpayers anything and, in fact, right. has been operating in the black for a long time. Well, and that's that's the second point I was going to I was going to make. This was not financed with taxpayers money at all. There was one year where Stocab lost a significant amount of money because they overstretched in the network deployment and the commercial uh, take up from from that wasn't sufficient to basically compensate the 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 excess deployment that they had done. Um, and so uh, on that year, uh, part of their debt was refinanced by the holding company that manages all of these public assets that, that the city has. But because many other of these companies were, were in profit that year, effectively, there was no external money filling that. Now, they were, there was one single year where they were not profitable in their, in their 14 years of existence. Now, they're churning cash for the city very, very significantly. They're a great asset to the city. And even though they are reinvesting a lot of that money in network expansion, so by the end of this year, they will have 400,000 homes eligible for service in Stockholm, which is basically every multi-tenant uh, dwelling connected. And originally, they weren't going to do single homes. And I think even that they're starting to look at now because it, it, they think it, it it can work just as well. That's a really important thing too. This this was not financed with taxpayers' money. Basically, uh, the backing of the city obviously allowed them to borrow money uh, at at you know good rates, and that is what sustained them. Now, they did this in 1994. In 1994, the the, the competition they were facing were. Uh, brand new cable operators that were not operating broadband at all and that didn't serve customers with broadband until the middle of the first decade of the 21st century and an incumbent that was uh, basically operating on copper for 99% of its needs. So they were well ahead of the game and that was a key element to their success. The big difference that you would find today in a city the same size as Stockholm is for the last 10 years, private businesses have been cherry picking uh, buildings and institutions that are obviously profitable to connect with fiber. And so that, that cherry picking effectively degrades a global business model if you were to you know, have a long-term strategy of connecting the whole city. Right, universal service. Right. You could argue that as a consequence of that, that their experience is not replicable. I think what is replicable is two, is, is two things, but it's replicable because the market has changed as well. So sure, the cherry picking happened, but back then, the idea of a city partnering with a private venture to basically build a balanced business model where both the areas that a private company would not find profitable and the areas that they would go for anyway would be covered by the same business model, and one would balance the other with some amount of, of public money, either subsidies or 
um, or investment to compensate the non-profitable areas, that's now become not just uh, envisageable, but actually implemented in, in many places. So that's the first uh, element that, that I think is really important. The second element is their cost of deployment in 1994 was probably three to four times what it would be today because mm -hmm. the technology has evolved a lot in the meantime. And, um, you know, whatever technology they were using back then to trench, to dig, to, to blow the fiber, et cetera, these were really early days of fiber in the access, to say the least. So none of these technologies were stable. There was a lot of risk and uncertainty around it. All of that's disappeared now. So if I had to basically stress one message, it would be that. I'm still not convinced that you could replicate Stokab on the scale of a city like Stockholm. I think those large cities, there, too much cherry picking has happened in the last 10 years to uh, make a project like that easily imaginable, basically. Mm -hmm. It's maybe not impossible, but I think it'd be very complex. However, um, in tier two cities, um, very little of that fiber infrastructure exists today, if any. And, and we're still talking cities of you know, several hundred thousand of residents. So um, in those places, I think the Stokab model can really represent a good starting point, maybe not as an exact replication, but there are definitely elements in there that can point a community willing to uh, bring state-of-the-art infrastructure to its uh, citizens and businesses towards a model that, that would work. Right, and I think some of that can be, well, we're about to release a case study on Santa Monica, where they effectively traded off time for money in that they built a lot of their network uh, when the streets were already open. And so if you have a city that that has this opportunity, they can even co keep costs low by just marrying the burying of this fiber and conduit with other projects that may be opening the streets already. And so you don't need to have the kind of success that Stokob had in order to um, pay it off. Uh, you keep the costs a lot lower, and so you can bring benefits while generating fewer revenues and still operating in the black. Um, and so I think, you know, the goal is never to, to just copy these, but to learn from them. And, and I think you've really helped us with that. I, I fully agree. And, and just on that point, um, when I was having these discussions with the politicians who took that early decision, one of the things they told me, which I thought was really interesting, was at the time they, they had no idea how much this network would power. I mean, you know, they weren't technology visionaries or anything. Mm -hmm. One of the key reasons that everybody agreed to do that was because of the market liberalization, they could imagine dozens of service providers asking to dig in the streets to lay bits of network here and there. And they envisaged an absolute urban chaos as a consequence. And so one of their most important drivers was actually to limit the amount of roadworks by, in effect, centralizing and, you know, forcing a collaborative model onto all the market players who wanted to access. And the, the benefits to the market players have been huge. One of the really interesting aspects of, of Stockholm is they have four 4G networks in operation today. They have a level of competition in, in LTE that is un unrivaled in the world. And the only reason that was possible is because fiber access to cell sites is much cheaper than it is anywhere else. 
the urban angle leads you to uh, a, a very healthy competitive market, much healthier than it is in, in most places in the world. I understand that uh, you are doing some more research into municipal networks around uh, the world. Is that right? Absolutely. In fact, in uh, it, probably in a week from now, we're going to release a, a report that analyzes the structures and the financing mechanisms of uh, many uh, of these in Europe. The reason we we chose to focus on Europe is that the, the European Commission has uh, set up some specific financing mechanisms and, and constraints for uh, municipal networks. So obviously there's a lot of them, but they operate under certain rules that that are uh, interesting to uh, kind of dissect and and discuss. So uh, that that's coming out, yeah, within a week uh, from now. Great. We're going to have to have you back on to learn more about the lessons from that. Um, people, I recommend uh, Googling or searching the internet uh, for diffraction analysis. It's diffractionanalysis.com. And if you search for that in Stokab, S-T-O-K-A-B, you'll find uh, this case study. So thank you for coming on the show. Thank you very much, Chris. Au revoir. That was Christopher talking with Benoit Felton from Diffraction Analysis. Be sure to visit diffractionanalysis.com where you can download the complete case study and learn even more about Stocab. If you have any questions or comments, we encourage you to email us at podcast at muninetworks.org. Our handle on Twitter is at communitynets. This show was released on November 13, 2012. Thanks again to Fit in the Conniptions for the music licensed using Creative Commons. The song is called Got My Modem Working. <laughs>